Hi there, I'm Peter. If we've not met, I'm one of uh, the elders here. Do grab uh, the sheet that you came in, that you should have got when you came in with the reading. We'll get to there in just a moment. Sometimes the Bible can be really tricky to understand, but what we're going to look at today is something I think we are all experts in, and that's failure. Um, but what we do when we fail seems to determine our lives a lot more than what we do when we succeed. It's in failing that we need to turn to Jesus. There's different types of failing, I guess. There's the kind of you missed out on the job or you finished second in the race type. There's the funny type, which is harmless, the kind of thing that six months later makes a really funny story. But the kind we're going to look at today is the more serious kind um, in the life of Peter. We're taking a break from our usual series uh, to look at this of what happens to him, the serious kind, the kind you don't ever want to bring up. And yet this is a normal part for all of us as part of the Christian life. And for some of us this morning, as we come to this, we might be in the same place as Peter was, thinking surely after all these years, God must have no patience left for us. Surely after all these years, he must be fed up of us by now, that we haven't progressed, that we continue to fail him. And how we react to failure is more important. There's lots of different things we could do. We we can deny it, we can minimize it, we can blame someone else or society, we can more and more boldly make another New Year's resolution. Um, or maybe you heard this morning it's sort of some sort of self-imposed punishment, like to, a bit like Dobby in Harry Potter where he irons his hands just to, anytime he does something wrong, just to, to feel better. And actually what we're going to see here is Peter's restoration after his denial of Jesus and how that's so much better than any of those other options and how that's such an encouragement to all of us today. Um, but since we're just jumping in, one, before we get to the reading, I want to do a bit of the story so far. Um, put simply, Peter is bolder than maybe the other disciples. He's the one who usually speaks first and he boldly says that he's never going to deny Jesus, that even if everyone else falls away, he won't, that he would uh, be in prison for him, that he would die for him. And then when the opportunity comes, when Jesus is arrested, he wants to stay at a distance, but he's getting cold and there's a coal fire nearby. And so he starts to warm up and he starts to be near other people. And then those people start asking questions of whether or not he follows Jesus and Jesus and, and Peter denies him. But now Jesus has gone to the cross and he's raised from the dead. Peter's already met Jesus by this point and he must be filled with something of an astonishing dread because he's astonished to have Jesus back but, but he knows there's this conversation coming. That there's astonishment to have Jesus back resurrected and yet dread of, well, what was the last thing I said and how he didn't live up to that. So this conversation for Peter, elements of it are going to be excruciating, but actually this is going to be liberating for him. So if you do have the um, passage there, so John chapter 21, verses 15 to 25. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? 
Peter was grieved because he had said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But now you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you to where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had been reclining at the table close to him and said, Lord, what is go-? the one who'd been close to him when he'd said, Lord, who's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread among the brothers that this disciple was not to die, yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but if it is my will, he will remain until I come. What is this to you? This is the disciples who are bearing witness about these things and who have written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written down, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. In this, we are going to see Peter's restoration after failure. Usually, we'd go through sort of verse by verse, but I'm just kind of highlighting three things. So we're going to see the restoration of a faltering love, uh, restored to a new poster, uh, a new a new posture rather, and restored with a job to do. We're going to see the restoration of this faltering love. That last verse where it says that there are things missed out in John's gospel, like miracles and other things that happened, and yet these things are included so we would know something about what it means to follow Jesus. Um, I'm a bit of a football fan, and often football banners are not uh, usually able to be shown in church, but I did find one. And, it, and the only reason I have it is because they use a word that I wouldn't expect from a football banner. Um, usually they don't go past four letters, certainly not two syllables, um, but for some reason, this poster is one I always remember because clearly they've just been going, how can we get the longest banner possible? Um, and they did it, which was to use the word quintessential. Um, had it been maybe a different sport, had it been an equestrian event, I might perhaps expect them to use the word quintessential. I don't know. But what everyone does when they see that is they Google, Google and try to find out what it means. And what it means is the very essence of the very core of the issue. And here, when Jesus is asking Peter these questions, he's getting to the quintessential issue. He's getting to the very core of, of what is most important here, of Peter's love for Jesus. That love is the quintessential issue here. He's not going around the edges. He's getting to the very core of what's most important. Look with me, verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. There's two different things that are getting recreated in this passage. The first thing that's getting recreated or remade is the disciples' first interaction with Jesus. Earlier up in, in the chapter, they, they go fishing, they don't catch anything, and then Jesus comes and they get loads of fish. So there's something of a recreation of it's recreating the moment before they were disciples. Um, Jesus will call Peter Simon throughout this passage. That was his name before he met Jesus. And so he's kind of 
remaking. It's, it's similar but slightly different to before he followed Jesus. The disciples at the start of the chapter are fishing. That was their day job before they knew Jesus as if following Jesus had never happened. But there's also a bit of a remake of the denial of Jesus that three times Peter will be asked, um, do you love me? Just as he was asked three times if he knew Jesus. And so we're very deliberately recreating these kind of, these bits is what is happening here that Peter's probably starting to remember what it was like before he followed Jesus. When Jesus says, do you love me more than these? There's two kind of different things that could be. It could be the fishing, the nets, the lifestyle that's in front of him. The thing it was he gave up to follow Jesus and now he's come back to. The thing that he has probably tried to preserve by not standing up for Jesus in the past. So it could be that. It could be the lifestyle of what Jesus is getting at. Or it could be the other disciples. Do you love me more than these people do? Because Jesus, when he'd made his bold profession, was absolutely adamant that he would follow even if everyone else fell away. You will sacrifice for what you love. You will follow for what you love. Hundreds of the commandments in the Old Testament can be summed up in the Ten Commandments. And then even further, Jesus in Matthew chapter 22 will say, well, he can go from the Ten Commandments to two of, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then in our modern day, sometimes we shorten that even further to love God and love others. But this is the core issue. This is the quintessential issue at stake. Jesus isn't asking about circumstances or particular details. He's going to the root of the issue. It isn't about how scared or tired Peter was. It isn't about mitigating circumstances, even if they were there. The important thing is whether or not he loves Jesus. Now, I find that terrifying as a test. Um, I wonder how recently you took a COVID test, whether that was this week or years ago. But people took them for different reasons. So some people were ill in bed, knew they weren't leaving, and it was kind of thrown at them just to prove that they maybe had COVID. And others of you, you took them regularly, so when you took the test, you expected it to come back negative because you didn't have any symptoms at all and you weren't expecting that. And tests can have different purposes. Sometimes you can test to prove something is the case, and sometimes you can test to prove that something isn't. Um, day job as a math teacher, so often I can have that. I can have tests where I have no idea how they're going to do. I can have tests where they're doing well and I need to show it, and tests where they're not doing as well and I need to prove it. But whenever I come to the Bible, I always tend to think any kind of test or any kind of condition, it's always that last option. That it always is, I automatically come with this kind of false assumption that the, the aim of the test is to prove me wrong. The aim of the test is to show that Peter doesn't love Jesus. But here, Jesus puts his hand on the wound, not to hurt, but to heal. Um, Jesus here is not trying to prove Peter's failure or lack of love. Jesus wouldn't have any reason to do that. Peter knows, the disciples know, everyone knows. Jesus wants to prove here that Peter does love Jesus. Jesus puts his hand on the wounds, not to hurt, but to heal. He asks, do you love me? Not, did you deny me? Did you abandon me? Did you disobey me again? But do you love me? He's, he's testing, he's using this as the essence, the quintessential issue, but it's one at which he expects Peter to pass. 
You see, we don't love him as much as we should, but imperfect and weak love is enough. It's not that we're in Christ when we follow and then suddenly we're out of Christ when we falter. Jesus is not asking here for what Peter can't give. Sometimes we might think of any kind of army recruitment process where maybe you have the drill sergeant and the aim of it is to find out who's, who's fittest, who's fastest, who's strongest and knowing full well that a lot of people can't make the standard and then you find who's the best. This isn't what Jesus is doing. In Matthew's gospel before Peter denied, it's recorded that Jesus said this to Peter. I have prayed that your faith may not fail and that when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. You see here, a faltering faith is not a failing one. Jesus doesn't want to catch him out, but to call him back. He's not trying to push him away. He's trying to bring him back in. And yes, this is going to be painful as Jesus goes to the heart of the issue, but he's doing it to restore him. He's not doing to catch him out or put an extra burden on him, but to bring him back in. Because it's exactly the same way as Peter first followed Jesus. He didn't have to live up to a standard first before Jesus said for him to follow. And Peter's faltering faith, Peter's imperfect love is enough. And I find that such an encouragement that when we feel like we've messed up again and it's the same kind of things that actually an imperfect faltering love is not a failing faith it's a genuine one it's a real one it's a realistic one a faltering faith is not a failing one but we also see Peter's restoration with a better posture so Jesus has got to the heart of the issue and then we're now going to see something of Peter's response um, it's getting close to election year, so we start to get to lots of politicians making different pledges. Um, and for some reason, people don't seem to trust politicians. So they try and think of how, how can they say they're really going to do it. And the more times you say, no, I'm really telling you the truth this time, the less people believe them. One example of this was uh, Ed Miliband, who thought, right, instead of just saying it, I'm going to set it in stone, because he was taking a metaphor very literally, which I can relate to. Um, unfortunately ended up looking a bit like a tombstone um, that he stood behind of his pledges and it never quite worked out it's like people won't believe me if I say it so I have to do some big grand gesture some politicians pledge in response to this test of his love Peter gives a better confession a better profession a better posture because he realizes actually he can't live up to his confession that he made before his brag before that he wouldn't fail even when all the other disciples did was grandiose but he couldn't live up to it that just saying more and more that on oh, next time I'll do better there's something in here for the original language so there's different different words used for love and the word Jesus uses is the kind of top tier version and then when Jesus says do you love me and when Peter responds he responds with a slightly different word still strong but he sort of the second tier, so I don't know how to pronounce the second word, it's the philo or something like that, it's the word from which you get Philadelphia, but every, the first time Jesus says, do you love me, and Peter says, you know that I love you, second time Jesus says, do you love me, Peter says, I know that you love me, you know that I love you, and the third time Jesus changes the word he uses, it won't necessarily appear in our translation, to come onto Peter's level, 
to use the same word he's using for love. It's n- Peter knows he can't make any grandiose claims himself, and yet Jesus is reaching down to him. I wonder if you've ever been at a kind of Christian camp or festival where at some point, there's lots of different ways you can do this, but at some point you have to write down uh, what sins God is going to forgive you for, and you might write them down on a post-it note that then ends up on a cross or in a fire um, or on a slab that you then end up smashing. Or there's lots of varieties, variation on a theme of all those different kind of things. And sometimes that can lull us into a false sense of security of thinking, well, once we're forgiven, that's our sin done with. And yet if you handed me a post-it note, it'd be the same things I'd be writing on it that I would have written on it then. See, we don't feel often as Christians we can make these kind of claims. Peter says, you know that I love you. I wonder if you've ever used that phrase with someone. You know that I love you. I'm not going to get you to tell the person beside you about that occasion, but you only ever do it when you're lacking the evidence, when something else has gone wrong, where there's some other reason to doubt it. Jesus knew Peter would deny him. Peter thought different. Um, so Jesus said Peter would deny him. Peter said he wouldn't. And now he's going, well, I'll just go with what you know. His confidence is in Jesus and what he knows. Sometimes we think of God being all-knowing as well, him knowing every single sin we've ever, ever done or that, that type of negative idea. But here, God being all-knowing is a comfort that Jesus knows Peter wants to follow even when he doesn't have the evidence to prove it. You know I love you only use when you're lacking the immediate evidence. And yet Jesus, knowing our desire, even when everything we've done this week might show otherwise, isn't, isn't this what most of the Christian life is? feeling like we can't quite make that commitment and yet God coming to us. By all means, be encouraged by your progress in the Christian life and don't be British, tell other people about it. But don't trust it. Make it, tr- make, it make you trust Christ all the more. Our works are not as consistent or done in a perfect way with perfect motives. Take the, God th- the good things God has done in your life and run with them. But don't love them instead of Jesus. He can live up to the scrutiny in a way the good things we do can. One of the things we see here in Peter is his better posture. And in many ways, Jesus told uh, a parable and Peter, between these two incidents, changes which character he is. Jesus tells this parable that two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even lift up his head to heaven and beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other man, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. Peter has gone from being like the Pharisee in this parable to the tax collector. He's gone from being the one who thanks God he's not like other people, who will trust what he's done and his good deeds and his commitment and his ability to live up to things, 
to the one who'll struggle even to lift his head. Elsewhere in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus foretells of someone coming to him and bragging about all the things they've done for him. Did I not cast out demons in your name? But there's someone who kind of quotes what they're doing, and yet Jesus says, away from me, I never knew you to that person. You see, Peter has a different posture. He is no longer as bragging or assuring himself, but knows he needs Jesus. And isn't that the posture we need to know God? Which one of us came to him without being in that place? So Peter's gone from the Pharisee to the tax collector. Look with me, verse 17. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? Peter is grieved. He's broken. He hasn't lived up to it, and after this, he's not going to perfectly live up to everything. His head is bowed, but Jesus will be the lifter of his head. At the start, we talked about lots of things you might do uh, when you failed, you might try and minimize it. Peter isn't doing that here. You might try and blame others. Peter isn't doing that here. You might try and make a new resolution, a new and an even stronger, bolder claim. Well, Peter certainly isn't trying to do it here. And Jesus here isn't looking for some kind of self-imposed punishment. He isn't after groveling. And I think the answer to what Peter's doing here, we find in Psalm 51. That's the famous kind of Psalm of David's repentance. And in Psalm 51, verse 17, it says, the sacrifices of our God are a broken and a contrite heart. What God's after is not that you go out, improve your performance, and come back next week, all the better, but that you have a broken and a contrite heart, that there is remorse that leads you to God, that we're not minimizing, we're not blaming, there's no new resolution, we're not going to self-impose our own kind of punishment where we have to work better and then come back stronger next week. But actually what God is after is the very thing a lot of us might be feeling this morning that we haven't lived up to it, that we have a broken and a contrite heart. See, following Jesus is a posture before it's ever a performance. Um, last week uh, when Dom was looking at the Exodus story he mentioned something about the timings and I sometimes get Bible stories mixed up as to different events that happen hundreds of years apart but there's one thing with Exodus you need to understand and that's that God's rescue becomes before our response that God's rescue comes before our response that the Exodus comes before the giving of the law it's the sick who need a doctor so we don't need to hide our illness or try to make ourselves well first that we don't need to prove ourselves to Jesus first, but actually just come to him with a broken and a contrite heart. So we see Peter's got a new posture, but that new posture has a purpose. He's restored with a job to do. He's restored with a job to do. I wonder if you've ever been given the burden of having to look after something precious. I think I've got a picture up here. Um, this is my nephew. He was here a month ago. 
See, you made it through the football and the COVID and the politics analogies, you get the picture of the baby. And there's nothing more terrifying than being, even for a short amount of time, responsible for him. I don't know if the software is up to date. Um, I know I'll be told a hundred times, hold the head, support the head, hold the head. But beyond that, I really don't know what I'm doing. But I'm also aware that I'm only loaned him for a bit. You see, Jesus, in his commands to Peter, verse 15, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. The sheep that is the people of God who he's restored, the church, belong to Jesus. They're his. They're precious to him. They're what he died for, that Peter will only ever be an under-shepherd, under only ever a substitute teacher, that yet he's been charged to look at, look after what Christ died for. This is the very thing that is precious to Christ. This is why Peter is being restored. This is what he's going to have to defend and nurture. When Jesus first called him to be a fisher of men, that's what he meant. This is his recommissioning, sometimes reinstatement. He isn't ditched. He's not out on bail. He isn't benched to the sidelines. And for the early church, some of them may be looking at a thing like this, as a leader like Peter and kind of doubting whether they should follow him. And yet here we see Jesus care for his sheep. Beyond whatever earthly leaders there are, his care goes further and deeper and more than that. You may think God has done with you, that he'll find someone else, that he'll reduce your role now, but actually we see here Jesus restores Peter fully to what Jesus called to do in the first place. You see, it's as if the mission of God goes on as if un uninterrupted. That Peter's going to do exactly the same thing as what he was going to do before. Peter now trusts what Jesus knows rather than what he knows. But he's about to find out something else that Jesus knows. So verse 18. Truly, truly, I say to you that when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after this, he said to him again, follow me. When Peter is older, he's going to show his love. That later on, he will be martyred. Church history records that he was later crucified. So Peter's not just restored to the rule, but in the end, he will live up to his confession that he will be imprisoned for Jesus, that he will die for him. That God's mission in this case goes completely uninterrupted by this failure. It's not as if Peter's denial is going to suddenly put everything off track. That the one who denied Jesus, even to a servant girl, is now going to deny, is now going to die for Jesus. And just at the end there, follow me. Exactly the same call. Simple, easy to understand, but very difficult. Um, because it doesn't answer all the questions. It doesn't answer all the questions of what's going to happen. It doesn't answer, in Peter's mind, what's going to happen to John, the other disciple there, that he's going to be worried about. But it is enough to know who we're following. You see, we might not know, but... Jesus does what is ahead. And, and from these last few verses, we can see that Peter is not the finished article. 
his immediate thing, his problem with competitiveness of having to be the disciple that looked the holiest, looked the best. And as soon as he's restored, the first thing he says is, what about that guy? And so he hasn't fully understood it. He's not fully sanctified. He's not going to be perfect. And yet he's going to be the one Jesus uses. And that should be a great comfort to us. So, what do we do when we fail? We don't need to deny it. We don't need to blame others. We don't need some new, even bolder resolution. And we don't need to work our way out of it. Our faltering faith is not a failing one. Imperfect, faltering love is enough. All we have to do is follow him. Do I know what that looks like for each of us this week? Not at all. But we know the one who does. What does it look like when we fail? We can come to Jesus without needing to sort ourselves out. And we can trust him. When he says, follow me, because he has gone to the cross, he has died for our sins, he has given us a way to be right with him, and he did not do that for us just to make one mistake and have it all undone. Peter's faltering faith is not a failing one, and nor is ours this morning. Um, but I want to read these words again from Matthew's Gospel of Jesus' prediction about Peter. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you sent Jesus to die for us, that he sends this call to follow him, that when we muck up and we mess up and we turn from you and we let you down again, we can still come and follow you, that you have not lost your patience with us, that though we will fall into the same traps and same routines year on year, and it might not feel at times that we're making progress. I pray that when the accuser accuses and throws all our sin before us, that you would point us to the cross where it's all dealt with, that you would help us to follow him this week. And whatever that may look like, we don't know, but we know that you know. And that is enough, Lord. And we thank you for all your goodness to us. Amen. In a moment, once the band are up, we'll sing a couple of songs to close.